I appreciate Aaron taking the time to thank those who served in Teen Week. I just want to add to that. Um, it's been a two back-to-back, really packed weeks of ministry here. And I appreciate all of you that have had an active part in that. Um, it takes a lot for a church our size to do that back-to-back and, and to make that happen. And so thank you for all you who have served over the last couple of weeks. And, and I would say to you that ministry is not done. Keep praying. Pray for fruit. Um, last night, my wife was looking at some stuff in the church management software program I think we had a total of 80 different teens who were here this week, one night or the other. Um, and that's, that's testament to these teens being bold and asking their friends, which I really appreciate. And uh, so 80 different teens probably roughly this week had a chance to hear the gospel. And I learned something really important this week. I am old. <laughs> I'm dying up here right now. I'm just going to tell you. I am dying. If I start to go down, it's probably because the legs are just dying. They're, they're giving out on me, man. I am old. But pray for fruit. Um, so this, this morning, we're going to wrap up in Luke chapter 12. And um, we're coming to a good breaking point. And this will be the last that we'll be in Luke for until probably late summer, early fall. Over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to be in the book of Psalms, and several of us will be, will be bringing a different psalm each Sunday morning. Um, I want to encourage you to, to be faithful over the summer as you have opportunity. I'm not telling you not to go on vacation. I'm going on vacation. <laughs> um, you won't see us for the next few Sundays, and so we're going to be just fine. It, I, got a whole, I got three weeks to recover from Teen Week, dude. <laughs> <laughs> and I need it bad. I need it bad. But, but as you have opportunity, be faithful. Um, the, men, the men are working hard to prepare in the Psalms, and I think you're going to really benefit from some of the things that you're going to hear. But as we come to our last time in the book of Luke for a while, I want us to kind of make sure that we pull back and understand what's been happening here so that we don't lose perspective. This is a book. This is a, this is a letter, a gospel written by Luke who probably most likely did not see any of these events firsthand. He took what had been shared with him and had been recording it faithfully and and, and writing it down for the benefit specifically of a Roman, probably a Roman official, a real higher up in the Roman government with the pseudonym of Theophilus. And and he's giving an account to Theophilus of of the life of Jesus and the things that Jesus said so that Theophilus would have certainty about the things that he had been taught. What we, what we can surmise is, is Theophilus is this man who, who encountered the gospel in, in some various form or fashion. He put his faith and confidence in Jesus Christ, and now Luke is writing to him, and it's really discipleship by letter. It's really discipleship by letter here as he's writing to Theophilus. And, and now, the section of scripture that we're in, if you look at the book of Luke, Luke is a, it's a giant letter. It's a giant gospel. And, and we're not even halfway through. Some of you are like, oh, that's depressing. <laughs> but, but we're not even halfway through. But beginning at the end of chapter 9, 
Luke is very specifically detailing Christ's move from Galilee down to Jerusalem for the final time. All of what we're talking about right now and all of what we're seeing here in the scriptures is, is in, the, in the final months of Jesus' ministry as he's moving from Galilee down to Jerusalem. And basically what Luke is doing, he's kind of giving us a travel log of this thing. And, and he's, he's sharing accounts of what's happened in different places. And one of the things that we've seen now is, is that as Jesus moves towards Jerusalem, the opposition has been ratcheted up. It has been, the, the heat has been turned up on Jesus. And, and we see this increasing conflict. We saw it in chapter 11, when we were there in chapter 11, where, where Jesus pronounces the woes upon the Pharisees and upon the religious leaders. And, and Jesus isn't holding back, and they're not holding back. And at the end of chapter 11, they, they just come right out. Luke comes right out and tells us what they're thinking. They are now actively looking for a reason, and they're looking for something that Jesus is saying to use against him. So, so it's in this, uh, have you ever been in a context like that, in a job or something, or, where, where you just know people are looking for a reason to do something against you? I mean, you feel that pressure so, so that pressure is kind of hanging there in, in the atmosphere. Every time Jesus gets up to speak, he realizes that this is going on. And don't worry for Jesus. He's the Son of God. He's going to say what he's going to say. But, but I'm just saying that to point out here, that's what's happening here. Then, at the beginning of chapter 12, he calls them out even further, as if the six woes weren't good enough in chapter 11. He just calls them what they are. He says, you're hypocrites. You're hypocrites. And he, and he basically, he lights them up. Last week we saw, as we looked at, at verses 35 to 48, Jesus called to his disciples and to the larger crowd that, hey, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming and you have to be ready. You have to be ready. It's in that context this morning as we come to verse 49 that, that, that if you will, the, the, the weight of, of the conflict with the, with the religious leaders and then on top of that, Jesus announcing that judgment's coming and you've got to be ready. It's in, it's in that heavy atmosphere that Jesus now is going to talk more about his return and he's going to talk about why he came. Why he came. So, in doing that, what we're going to learn this morning is something that several of you, maybe many of you in this room, have experienced in your life. How many of you have experienced this to be true, either in your family or on the job, that Jesus and your commitment to Jesus brings division? Has that happened to you? You've lost loved ones, you've lost relationships, you've lost good friends because of your relationship to Jesus. And, and this morning, we're going to see that, that Christ brings division. Now, he shouldn't bring division to a body of believers who are trusting in him, but, but when you bring Christ into a situation, it has a way of dividing things. I have said this before, and I want to say it again to us this morning. Have you noticed, and, and, and it's getting to be Olympic season again, and, and so anytime they interview an athlete, if they talk about God, it's, it's fine, right? They can talk about their God. But when they start to talk about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, what do most interviewers do? It almost looks like they're ready to throw up, and they're like trying to figure out how they can toss it back to the studio, right? 
Because, because really, God, God's a safe thing to mention because, after all, everybody has their God and their view of God out there. But, but our world knows that when you mention Jesus Christ, that that kind of ups it a little bit. And can I encourage you this morning, follower of Jesus, don't be ashamed to, to talk about your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Don't be ashamed to use his name. Don't be ashamed to represent him. In your conversations, if they're at work or with your neighbors or whatever, don't make them God conversations. Make them conversations about Jesus Christ. And, and, and don't be afraid to, to name the name. So, this morning, would you turn with me to Luke 12? We're going to read verses 49 through 59 this morning. These are Jesus, these are Jesus words as he talks. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it had already been kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be a scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer puts you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Father, this morning, what we know not, would you, by your grace, teach us? What we have not this morning, would you give us? And what we are not, would you make us through Jesus Christ our Lord? We ask these things in his name. Amen. I want you to see first this morning that Christ is the divider. Christ is the divider. Jesus, in our first verse here, in verse 49, states his reason for coming to the earth. And, and, and before we even look at that, I want to read to you several snippets of Scripture that Jesus has been quoted at in the Gospels for saying the reasons why he came. For instance, in John chapter 10 and verse 10, he said that he came that they might have life and have it more what? Abundantly. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, he said he didn't come to be served, but to serve. John chapter 18, verse 37, says that he came to bear witness to the truth. Luke chapter 19, verse 10, says he came to seek and save those who were lost. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus said he came to fulfill the law. And when we start to think about those things, when we look here at verse 49, it would seem from just the outside looking in that these things don't match up here. You know, coming to bring fire on the earth, coming to throw fire on the earth does not seem to match up with seeking and saving the lost or giving abundant life. Um, I don't know about you, but scorching fire on the earth does not, does not bring images in my mind of abundant life. 
But yet, even though they don't seem to fit, these all fit very perfectly. They all fit very perfectly. We have to look at our text here, and we have to understand the context. Last week, we talked about Jesus giving the warning that, that he's to return, right? And, and he gave the warning in several different ways. He talked about if, you're, if you are the, the servant, you, you are to be ready for whenever the master may show up. You, you were, your duty as the servant is to always be ready, always be prepared. And then he used a second illustration where he said this, if you knew what time the thief was going to show up, you would what? You would be prepared, right? And he used those two illustrations to, to get us, to get his hearers thinking that, that Christ is going to bring all of this to an end at a time that we do not know, and so we must be prepared. Why do we have to be prepared? What's so urgent about being prepared? Well, here's what's so urgent about being prepared. He's come to cast fire, not just fire in the future, but notice he's talking about his first coming here. I came the first time to cast fire on the earth. Little sweet baby, Jesus in the manger, one of the reasons for him coming the first time was, was to bring fire. And so we have to stop and consider this because there are several different things that Jesus could be talking about. And, and there are several who, who have strong disagreement about this. Several believe that the fire that he's bringing is he's ushering in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You know how in Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, after Christ leaves, he leaves the Holy Spirit. And that's the fire that he's talking about. But that doesn't fit with our context here. The context here is, is judgment. And, and, and if I challenge you to read all four Gospels, and if you read all four Gospels, will you find that Jesus rained fire down on earth before he left? Will you find that? No. But I would submit to you that he did bring the fire of God's judgment. He did bring the fire of God's judgment. He says, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. And would that it were already kindled. How does Jesus' first advent bring judgment. Well, turn with me to John chapter 9. Keep your finger here and turn with me to John chapter 9. I want you to see Jesus in his own words. One of the reasons he came, I didn't read to you and share with you. John records it for us in John chapter 9 and verse 39. Jesus says here in John 9, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things, and they said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would see, or you would have no guilt, but now that you say we see, your guilt remains. What's Jesus saying there? What, what, what is the testimony of Jesus from his own lips? That he came into this world to bring judgment. That wouldn't play very well on Christmas morning at church, would it? Maybe we should sing judgment songs this coming year, Pastor Andy, on Christmas, you know? Judgment songs, because he came to bring judgment. And, and it fits perfectly with the idea that he came to seek and save those who are lost. Because let's understand this, with Jesus there's no middle ground. Yes, Jesus did come to seek and save those who would repent and believe. But those who would reject Jesus, he came very specifically to bring judgment on them. Let me say that again for your ears to hear. There's no middle ground with Jesus. 
Either you've repented and believed and put your confidence in him and he is your Lord and Savior and he is going to be your shelter in the storm or you will be judged by him. And there's no middle ground. Someone has said it this way, the gospel is a fire that either purges or it purifies. I like that. The gospel is a fire that either purges or it purifies. And if you're not purified by the gospel, you will be purged. Now notice what he says. And would, or I wish, that it was already kindled. So he hasn't, he hasn't brought the fire yet. He hasn't brought the fire yet. Here he is towards the end of his ministry here on earth, and he hasn't brought the fire yet. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is going to be the big fire-bringing event? Well, I think we have clue of that in verse 50. We have clue of that in verse 50. He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with. When we think baptism, what do we think about? We think about what element? Water. The word baptism just totally means to be immersed. It means to be immersed. Jesus, to my knowledge, he was baptized by, by John the Baptist, but, but I, I can't think of any other time when Jesus is here on earth when he's immersed. And he says, I have a great baptism to be baptized with. He's not talking about the baptism of John the Baptist. That's already happened. The baptism that Jesus is talking about is at the very moment when he is hanging on the cross and God pours out all his wrath and fury on him as Christ bears our sins on the cross. That's what he's talking about here. How do I know that? Read further into verse 50. And he says, how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Now, now, don't misinterpret the words of Jesus here. Jesus is not saying, I'm wringing my hands and I'm worried about this, whether or not I'm going to be able to take it or not. No, what he's saying is, I know, because he's fully God and fully man, I know how bad it's going to be when my Father pours out his wrath on me as I bear the sins of the world on the cross. And he says, this grips me. This grips me. Later on, Luke will give us a little insight into that. Remember that passage discussing what happens in the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane as Jesus is praying there? And what is Luke described for us physically as happening to Jesus? He's sweating great drops of blood. That doesn't happen normally. That only happens when your body is under so much stress that literally the capillaries where the veins and the arteries come together, they literally start exploding in your body. And so Jesus here is hinting at that. And what he's saying is, is that at the moment when God pours out his wrath on him, that is the moment of salvation and it's also the moment of judgment as well. It's the moment of judgment as well. And so the gospel brings judgment. The gospel brings judgment. And, and, and I think, honestly, can I speak to all of us this morning? We, we all like the one side of the gospel, don't we? The, the side of the gospel that saves, right? And, and for most of us, that's the way that we present the gospel, isn't it? You know, we present the gospel as like, you need this to be saved, right? 
well, you also need this to not be judged. You also need this gospel to not be judged because the gospel brings judgment and it brings division. Notice verse 51. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? Just about every Christmas carol talks about what? Peace on earth. When Jesus left the earth the first time, did he leave the earth in complete peace? Did he? Uh-uh. How many of you are awake to what's going on in the world today? Are we in complete peace on earth? We can't even get along in our county, let alone the state, let alone, let alone the, you know, the country, let alone the world. There's no peace on earth. We live in a very divided world, don't we? You want to know why we live in a divided world? It's not because people don't think like you think they should think, like you. We live in a divided world because this is the reality. When people are not at peace with God, they will not be at peace with one another. Let me say that again. When people are not at peace with God, they won't be at peace with one another. And so until, until we live in a time when there's total peace with God, and newsflash, that's not going to happen until Christ returns and establishes his throne, right? We're not going to have peace on this earth. And Jesus illustrates this with the family. And, and, and this is sobering, that Jesus would pick the family. Because for many of us here today, there, there's nothing more sacred in our lives than family. Right? How many of you, when you leave this earth, you want to believe that your kids are going to always get along? You want to believe that everything is going to be in perfect harmony? You want to believe that everything is just going to be just so? I want to tell you this this morning. Jesus takes an institution that God establishes way back in the Garden of Eden and he uses this as his prime illustration to show just how much division that the gospel brings. Notice what he says, verse 52. From now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. And it's not whether or not you like Mountain Dew or like coffee. No, what's the dividing point? Christ himself is the dividing point here. Christ himself is the dividing point. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law. Well, duh, we know that one. And daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Why? Why? It's because when you truly stand with Christ, those who don't stand with Christ, they can't take it. And even family ties aren't strong enough to, to, to bind that over. Some of you are living this. You know the pain of not having fellowship with your family because you stand with Christ. Can I just comfort those of you with a word from Matthew chapter 19 while we're right here? In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus says this, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. 
Again, it's, it's the same thing that we've seen in this Luke chapter 12. Either we focus on the 70 or we can focus on the 7 million. We can either focus on the 70 years that, that God says we're going to have on this, on this earth, or we can focus on all of eternity. And for many of us, we're so focused on the 70 that we miss out on everything else. But I want to tell you this, there's no guarantee that you're going to have unity in your family unless you're all in Christ. And even then it's hard, isn't it? And even then it's hard. So Jesus here is saying this. I've come to bring division. I haven't come to bring peace on this earth. But let me say one more thing about this before we leave this point. According to Romans chapter 5 and verse 1 though, he is the only way to have peace with God. So Jesus didn't come to bring peace on this earth. He came to sacrifice so that people on this earth can have peace with God. And don't trade for the sake of keeping peace on earth, not making peace with God. That's a really bad trade. That's a really bad trade. So the first thing we see this morning is, is that Christ is the great divider. And in light of the fact that judgment is coming and that Jesus brings division, here's what he says to the larger crowd now. You need to be discerning. And here's what he's saying to us. We need to be discerning. Look with me at verses 54 through 56. Verses 54 through 56. So he uses two meteorological illustrations here. Okay? How many of you, like me, get frustrated with Columbus weathermen? They are the worst. I mean, I can pull up an app on my phone that shows thunderstorms right over my house. And they're like, oh, it's going to be sunny and great today. They can tell me that I'm going to get 10 feet of snow, and I plan and prepare for it, and I go out and I get a dusting. Okay? Every one of us should be paid as well as a weatherman and to get such poor results. Right? I mean, honestly, sign me up for that job. I just got to crack a couple jokes, point to the map, say a couple numbers, and collect my check. <laughs> There's no weathermen here in Jesus' time, right? And living in the land of Israel, quite honestly, getting the weather right isn't rocket science. We're not, Jesus isn't up in Galilee at this time. Galilee is a different region up there. Around the Sea of Galilee with all the hills and mountains around it, it's hard to predict the weather. But, but down here, closer to Jerusalem, it's really not hard to get the weather right. And he illustrates that. Notice verse 54. When you see a cloud rising in the west, time for a little geography lesson. What is to the west of the land of Israel? What's there? The Mediterranean, right? Okay, when you see clouds over the Mediterranean that are headed your direction, what does that mean, church? It's gonna rain, okay, right? What's to the south of Israel, church? You know, desert. Is the desert hot or cold? <laughs> Usually it's hot during the day and it can get really cold at night, can it? But, but when the wind is coming from the south, what are you going to say the temperature is going to be? 
you guys could make it in Israel. You guys should probably, you need a second career plan, go over to Israel, be a meteorologist. Okay, that's not that complicated, is it? And so Jesus, he takes this and he says, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, shower's coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there is going to be scorching heat, and it happens. Put yourself in the mind of these religious leaders. He's right. He's right. We do get the weather right all the time. We always know. And then he just drops another Jesus bomb on them in verse 56. You hypocrites. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? This is a call for discernment. This is what this is. This is a call for discernment. And Jesus is pointing out the alarming lack of discernment in these religious leaders. These, these guys who have the scriptures literally at their fingertips, they have the Torah, these big scrolls of God's word, and they're supposed to be students of the word. These guys who have it, who can see all the prophecies about Jesus, and here's Jesus not only fulfilling these prophecies, but Jesus has gone to every town and every village around them, and he has explained, here's who I am, here's why I'm here, here's what I'm doing, and here's what I'm going to do. In other words, he's given them a lot more information than what the weather does, right? They're making meteorological interpretations based on a cloud in the west and a wind out of the south. That's not much to go on, is it? And here Jesus has laid out the facts for them. He's like, you get the simple stuff weather-wise, but you can't discern the times here. They made weather predictions with far less information than, than, than what they're getting about who Jesus is. And so it's not a matter of information for these religious leaders, and it's not a matter of information for some of you who have rejected Jesus. It's not a matter of information. They rejected Jesus not because they lacked information. They rejected him because he wasn't doing what they wanted him to do. It's not, it's not that they couldn't read, it's that they wouldn't read the situation. Specifically, what did they want him to do? Why are they so upset with him? I can think of two big reasons. One, he, he, he hasn't overthrown Rome yet. And so, so he hasn't changed the political landscape. And may I submit to you, there are some of you in this room today who are angry at God because he hasn't changed the politics in our country. Get over it. We serve the kingdom of heaven. And some of us are so angry because the politics are all screwed up. I'll be the first to tell you they are screwed up. But also be the first to tell you God's on his throne. And so these religious leaders are so upset. You haven't overthrown Rome. You haven't done what we wanted you to do. You're not our genie in the bottle. Jesus never came claiming to be the genie in the bottle. The second thing they're upset with him about is this. He has yet to validate all of their hard work. Has he once said to the religious leaders, you guys do a great job keeping all the rules? Has he once? No. And is he going to? No. They're so upset and so dissatisfied with Jesus because they're not getting the Jesus that they want. 
And I want to tell you, that's a lousy reason to be condemned and go to hell forever. Don't go through life being angry with Jesus because he's not the Jesus you want him to be. Yes, he'll be a personal savior, but he's not going to be your personal genie. He will save you personally, but he's not going to be the one that you just turn to to get exactly what you want when you want it. And so these religious leaders, it's not a matter of that they don't necessarily have the ability to be discerning. They have chosen to not be discerning. They're no different than the stupid ostrich that puts its head in the sand. This is what they're doing. But there's grace here. There's grace here, and I want you to see it in the final paragraph of this text. He just, he keeps going. He doesn't give them a chance to answer. Can you imagine what the religious leaders are like when he calls them hypocrites? They're all probably like, <gasps> but he just keeps going. And, and he says, why do you not judge for yourselves? Verse 57, what is right? It's like, why, why, why don't you make a judgment here? Why don't you, why don't you take a look at things and, and, make a, and make a personal assessment here? And notice, this is directed to persons. What's the pronoun he uses there? It's not you like a general group. He says it specifically yourselves. And that's, that's key for us understanding this here. This final appeal that Jesus gives is not just a general appeal to the large group of people who are in opposition to him. It's, a, it's an individual appeal to individual people here. And he says, why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? And that question needs to be thrown at every single one of us this morning. We need to judge what is right. What's truthful here? And he uses another illustration here. And this illustration that he uses conjures up in my mind Matthew 18. You remember Matthew 18, the parable of the, of the unforgiving servant? So, so in the parable in Matthew 18, we, we have a man who owes a debt that he cannot possibly repay. Remember that? He owes a debt that, that with all of the rest of his life, he could never earn enough money to repay this debt. Okay, and, and, and so now he is taken to, to debtor's court, if you will, okay, and, and, and he's about to be sentenced. And what happens to you if you can't repay your debt in this society? What happens? You're thrown away in prison, right? Right? You're put in debtor's prison. You're separated from your family. You're, you're cut off. You're thrown in there, right? For how long? Well, until you can repay well, that's a lousy way to earn money back to repay, right? So you're thrown in this jail, and you have to come up with money while you're in this jail to repay the person that you owe money to. That's hopeless, is it not? And remember in the parable of the unjust servant in Matthew 18, what, what does the servant do? What does he do before he's thrown, before he's carried away for a sentence? What does he do? He begs, doesn't he? He begs. He says, I need mercy. And what happens in the illustration that Jesus gives? The master gives it, right? Who is that describing? 
It's every single one of us who have had our debt forgiven by Jesus Christ, is it not? Do you remember the second part of that, though, that parable? The one who's just had his debt forgiven, what does he do? As Jesus tells this, he's leaving the court where he's, where he's just escaped sentence. He's leaving it, and he comes across his friend Bob. I know, not a good Hebrew name. He comes across his friend Bob, who owes him, he owes him a significant amount of money, but not nearly the kind of money that he just had forgiven. And what does the Bible say that he does? What does Jesus say he does? He takes him by the throat, right? He says, you pay me what you owe me. It's that kind of scenario that we have here in verse 58. And so he says here, as you go with your accuser before the magistrate, literally, we got a guy here who's dragging another guy, and he's taking him, he's on his way to court. Okay? Now, keep in mind, this is in, this is in light of understanding the times. This is in light of the previous passage we talked about last week, where Jesus says judgment is coming. So, so who can we, we assume here is the one who has a legitimate claim to bring somebody to court? Who is the one who's bringing him to court? It's Jesus. Jesus is dragging this person who has the unforgivable debt to court. What's going to happen in the court? Well, look what happens. Jesus said, this is what's going to happen in the court. He's going to drag you to the judge. The judge is going to hand you over to the officer. The officer is going to put you in prison, and you're never going to get out until you paid the last penny. We just said, can you pay the last penny? Do you realize what's being described here? He's talking about final punishment, final sentence being put on you for your sins. But do you see the grace? I skipped one phrase here, didn't I? Do you see it there? It's the second phrase in verse 58. As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way. This is the beauty of God the Father. This is the beauty of Jesus. He'll settle up with us before he throws us in that debtor's prison. He'll settle up with us and there's time, there's grace to be had now. There's a way to settle. But if you don't make that settling with Jesus before you get to the court, guess what? It's too late once you get to the court, isn't it? It's too late once you get to the court. And so what Jesus is saying this morning to all of us as we listen to this is, if you've never sought his forgiveness for your sin debt, he says, be discerning, understand the times, do it now, settle up with God before it's too late. Settle your account with God. The problem is, there are many of us who are trying to settle up our accounts with God by, by our good works and our effort. And, and we can't repay it with our good works and effort, can we? Jesus himself, as he alluded to in the first part of our text this morning, he's going to go, he's going to go to the cross where he's going to be literally immersed in our sin and in the judgment of God on that sin so that we don't have to pay that debt. Isn't that an amazing thing? I mean, let that sink in this morning. Isn't that an amazing thing? I mean, go back. Look, look, look at verse 50. 
if you're in Christ, Jesus was baptized with the fire of God's judgment for you. Does that make you thankful, believer? That's a baptism you're never going to have to face. He took that for you. He took that for me. But before we go, I want to turn to a passage of Scripture. And I want, to turn, I want you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Because this has just been sticking in my mind all week. along with the fact of how old I am and how tired I am, this thought has been sticking in my head all week. Because I know many of you, I know many of you well. And I knew that as I preached this morning about Jesus being a divider, that that's going to hit close to home for many of you. Be honest with me, that's painful to hear in a way, isn't it? That Jesus is a divider. It's painful to hear. Some of, you, some of you are grieving over your children who are still unbelievers, and, and it's because, because you've trusted in Christ and they haven't, and, it, and, it's, and it's kind of brought friction to your relationships. Some of, you, some of you are contemplating work situations, and because of your loyalty to Christ, what that means. And I got news for you. As, as, as Christ delays his return, that's only going to get worse for us, body of Christ. What does God say to that? Does God care about that? Yeah, he does. He does. I want to give us some perspective. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So Paul here is talking about how we have the treasure of the gospel in clay pots, right? I am feeling like a clay pot this morning. You ever feel like a clay pot? And so, verse 16, he says, We do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And that outer self, he's talking mostly about the body, but, but it's, also, it's also the emotions that we all feel. It's the grief we feel whenever we have these problems with our, with our loved ones and, 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 and jobs and all this stuff, the pressure that we face in this life. And there are times we just feel like we are just getting ground up, don't we? Notice the, notice the perspective that Paul brings us here. Verse 17. This light, momentary affliction. Look up here. Does it always feel light? Does it feel momentary? Does it feel like more than just an affliction? How can Paul call it light momentary affliction? Well, keep going. It is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. Beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. To those of you this morning who are feeling the pain of this, of Jesus being the divider, stop looking at the things that are seen. I know it's hard, but look to the things that are not seen. Look to the things that are not seen, that are just as real as the things that are seen. Look to the things that are not seen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are what? What does Paul tell us, that last word? 
They're eternal. They're not going to go away. Unfortunately, and as hard as this is for us to come to grips with this, there's no guarantees that we get to take all of our family with us to heaven. And as tragic as that seems, and it is tragic, here's the thing. When we get there, I don't know how, but by God's grace, it's not going to matter because we're going to be with him in glory. The jobs that we lost because we stood with Jesus aren't going to matter when we're with him in glory. The relationships with your friends that you lost here on this earth are not going to matter when you get there with that crushing weight of God's glory. Think of it this way. Think of it this way. Jesus was baptized with God's wrath so that you and I can be crushed by the weight of God's glory. Isn't that a beautiful thing? And so, friend, I'm not saying it's not hard. Paul does call it an affliction. And it may not seem momentary, but in the eyes of God, it is momentary. Even if you have to do it for 70 or 80 years, put up with that, guess what? Eternity makes those 70 and 80 years seem like what? And so let's keep our eyes on the things that aren't seen. Father, I'm so thankful for the truth of that song that we sang, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. And, and, and for my friends, my brothers and sisters in this room who are feeling that crushing weight, that, that feeling of loss because they've lost relationships, they've lost jobs, they, they've lost, they're struggling for income because of their standing with Christ. Help us to see it as a light momentary affliction. And the only way we can do that is to look beyond this life, to see, to see the unseen. Help us to get a glimpse of the unseen, Father. We thank you for Jesus. And, and even though Jesus is a divider, he's also our way to peace with God. And so we pray for those in this room this morning who do not have peace with God. May today be the day that they have peace with God, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.